I put myself through so many dark moments of life. Like I lived through all these things that told me to stop doing this thing that doesn't even make me feel good. Drinking isn't like a fun thing after a certain point, you know? So I put myself through all that. And then, so what, what endurance and like lifting and, and running for sure, I feel like I'm good at it because I've been to the pain cave mentally for, for so long, you know? And all signs pointed to stop. And I kept going. And so to me in running, I'll never get to a pain cave or a mental pain cave as bad as it was, you know, at my lowest moment in drinking. So I think that I'm just attracted to that because number one, the process is just really cool to do something day in, day out and actually see a benefit. I just got attracted to that process. And then also I could just stay in this terrible moment for as long as we can. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Tommy Bailey, better known as Tommy Runs. I met Tommy back in April at the Racers Roundtable that I hosted and he participated in a few days before the Boston Marathon, and after talking with him for just a little bit that day, I knew that I needed to sit down with him for the podcast. That brief encounter led to this nearly two-hour conversation, and it's a really special one. In this episode, Tommy talks to me about the period of time he lived in Massachusetts, his troubled relationship with alcohol, and the journey he's traveled to sobriety. He told me about when and how running came into his life and the path he followed to qualifying for the Boston Marathon. We discussed identity and how that's shifted for him over the course of his life, what it's like being a black runner in his hometown of Detroit, and so much more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for supporting the podcast. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport. Their spring-summer collection is now available and features staples thoughtfully designed for training and racing hard in warm weather. From their ultra-versatile session tees and tanks cut from a silky, soft stretch knit, which feels oh so good against your body, to the soft yet supportive Alston Half Tights. That is my go-to workout kit every Wednesday morning, by the way. These pieces are built to work as hard as you do. I'm also a big fan of the Twilight Tank, which is the singlet I've been racing in for the past few years. It's super lightweight and built to race, and I just feel faster when I put it on. In the spirit of Twilight, Tracksmith is hosting a series of 5Ks through the months of July and August in eight cities across the U.S. I will be at the two in San Francisco, and I cannot wait. These Twilight 5Ks focus on getting you to your fastest time with pacers, a fast track, and a great environment. For more information, please go to tracksmith.com slash twilight5000. And remember, if you buy anything on tracksmith.com in the month of June, you can get free shipping on your next order and support the Tracksmith Foundation, which helps give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field by using the code MARIO22 at checkout. That's MARIO22 when you check out at tracksmith.com. This episode is also brought to you by Open. Open is a digital mindfulness platform combining breathwork, meditation, and movement. Open is like my new favorite thing that I make time for each day. 
Like a lot of people, I can easily get swept up in the inertia of the day-to-day, and if I've been go-go-going without making time to stop and recenter myself, I'll be tight and stressed. This is where Open comes in. I do a 5-10 to minute breathwork class most days to get away from my desk and clear my head. It's easy and effective, and I'm always much better off coming out of a class than before I went into it. With Open, you have access to unlimited live and on-demand breathwork, meditation, yoga, Pilates, and more. Connect directly with your teachers during in-class live streams and bring a friend to any class with unlimited guest passes. So, let's take a class together. Open is giving Morning Shakeout listeners 30 days free when you visit withopen.com slash Mario. Again, you can join me on Open by going to withopen.com slash Mario. Let me know what you think, and I'll see you in class. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation with my new friend, Tommy Runs. We got to meet last month at the Boston Marathon, and we talked very briefly. And one thing I know about you is you're based just outside of Detroit. But one thing I learned about you that weekend is that you spent some time in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Now I'm a Massachusetts native. I don't live there anymore. But anytime I meet someone who has a Massachusetts connection, I got to learn more about it. So tell me about Gloucester and how long you lived there and why you were there in the first place. So it was actually up. It was up actually like Newburyport area. Um, okay. It was actually I lived. We lived in Amesbury, Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, so up right near, on like, the North Shore. Yeah, right up, up near New Hampshire. Um, yeah. So I I lived out there for maybe six years, from like two thousand seven to like two thousand thirteen fourteen, mm-hmm. um, and then moved back to the Detroit area um, after being out there for a little bit. What brought you out there? So yeah, that's a long story. So I was, um, yeah, I was, uh, 23, just had my daughter. Um, she was three months old when we ended up moving, but I was, you know, found myself in, um, a lifestyle that was not conducive to like trying to raise a daughter, um, or start a family really. So my mom just so happened to work, have a job in Newburyport, Massachusetts. And she's like, she has a house there. So she was like, Hey, um, this is a really nice area, a lot different than what, you know, you're used to right now. Um, do you want to come out and try to start like fresh, start over? And um, so I talked to my girlfriend at the time, like, uh, yeah, do you want to move and start fresh? We can get out of here. And she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. And so we took our daughter on, uh, on uh, we actually drove through Canada on 9-11-2007 and drove to Massachusetts. And we were there and I got a job almost right away maybe three months into it. And I just so happened to work for the same company to this day. So so you drove there from Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually a friend of my mother's uh, who had a pickup truck, like with a covered like cab on the back or whatever. He came to help us pack up the little stuff that we, you know, owned and whatever, mostly clothes and a couple of pieces of furniture, barely, but mainly clothes. Um, and, Drove through Canada and st- spent the night one night there and um, made the rest of the way. And, and then, that, like, I guess the rest is history from there. Were you born and raised in the Detroit area? No, I was born in uh, New York, uh, Poughkeepsie area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so uh, my we ended up moving to Detroit 
uh, area around, actually, I think we moved to Detroit, actually, um, when I was like five or so, because my parents um, split and uh, they're going through a thing. So um, we moved, left my father there in New York and came back here. Because my, my mom and he were both, um, my, my mother was born and raised here, um, but my dad was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and then his family, but the, his mother and all that lived, and he was raised in Detroit. So it was coming home for my mom. So she came back to where she had some support. And so from maybe five till 23, I was uh, in the area. So tell me about where you were at at that point of your life, 23 years old, moving to Massachusetts. You're a new dad. You started a new job when you got there. It sounded like you just needed a fresh start, but paint a fuller picture of it for me. Okay. Well, um, yeah. So 23, uh, it, it was, I mean, it was, a, it was, a, it was kind of a, a scary time, you know, to, to be, you know, that young, um, with, uh, with a daughter and not really like a clear path to like how I was going to take care of this daughter, you know, and who I was, who I wanted to be as a father. So the opportunity to, to not be around, you know, dangerous situations or, um, illegal situations. Um, I was like, I just jumped at the opportunity. So I was excited about this new thing, but I was just still like, what, you know, how am I going to make this work? Um, you know, after graduating like high school, I didn't, I chose not to go to college, um, and just started working. So, I mean, I knew how to get a job and I knew, and my mom raised us really well to, you know, to the point where we know how to like go get something if we really need it, you know, or want mm -hmm. to. Um, so, I mean, she did a great job in that. I, I just chose to go the wrong way. Um, so it was definitely not a lack of like her effort, but um, so going, trying to get back into the work world was actually really weird for me because I had been out of it for a little bit of time. Um, in fact, I, um, I tried to, I tried before I moved, I tried to get a job at Quicken Loans and now it's like rocket mortgage now. And um, I interviewed and I did so I did well in the first interview. They, they called me back to the second interview and he's like, um, I did a great job there. I guess it was like four or five people at the table. They're asking me all these questions and um, they addressed like the gap, you know, the employment gap. Like I just didn't I hadn't I didn't have a job for like two, three years. Um, and they're in, in the first interview. So they call me back. There's is everything's going great. And then I'm thinking, like, I got this in the bag. I got a tie on. I'm like, this is great. I got a daughter. This is going to be cool. And he says, well, so what we figured is you're either a con artist or you could have every job that you want in this building because you're whatever. You seem to be so great at whatever you, you know, whatever. Long story short, I did not get the job, the job. but I'm like, well, at least I know, how, at least I can interview well, obviously, because maybe too well, I guess. Um, but so the opportunity to leave, that was a side story, but an opportunity to leave was great. So I get out to Massachusetts and. I just like immediately just tried to do what I thought like a dad, you know, or, you know, and I had pr proposed to my wife or uh, now wife before I left, before we left. Um, because I'm like, hey, if you're crazy enough to just leave everything you know to come with me, then, you know, <laughs> you're a keeper. Um, so we, I, I got there and I'm like, I just need a job. So I started working at a donut shop. I worked there from a Sunday to a Sunday. Dunkin' Donuts? Uh, no, it was like, it was, um, oh man. You would know the name of it too, um, since you're from out there. It's, it's, a, it's a honeydew little, donuts. Honeydew. Thank you. Yeah, I couldn't remember that for the life of me. Honeydew donuts. 
Honeydew Donuts on like on a uh, Route One Ten, I think that is sure. Like, yeah, yeah, right there in, in Salisbury, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, I'm working at Honeydew, and I worked there from a Sunday to a Sunday. But while I was working there, I interviewed at at Lowe's up in Seabrook, and um, so on that Monday, I, I on the Sunday I said, Hey, I got a um, I got a new job, and I'm sorry, I got to leave. And I worked seven days in a row just because I want the money. And then Monday, I started in Lowe's. I worked there for two months, interviewed at this job that I'm at now. Started as a uh, the lowest possible position you could have in this company. And at the moment, I'm uh, one of the pre- vice presidents of the company. So it's been a cool you know, journey to yeah. get from that like struggle fest very quickly. It was a struggle for a while, too. I mean, I was, I was getting paid as low as you could pay somebody because I just had no background, you know. But I just stayed at it and made my way through the company over the years. And now here we are. Looking at your Instagram handle, part mm-hmm. of your identity now is right in it. Tommy runs pretty <laughs> yeah, yeah. direct and yeah. clear what Tommy does. Yeah. Let's rewind to that time when you were 23 years old, moving out to mm-hmm. Massachusetts, your new dad for the first time, you're bopping around from job to job. How would you have identified yourself back then? Because running was not a part of your life. Man, it would have been like um, Tommy's, <laughs> Tommy's confused or, you know, like or Tommy searches. I don't know. Um, it was just, it was, it was a really, it was just, it was, I mean, it, it was just tough, you know, not, you know, not knowing how to, you know, my my mom did a great job at, at like trying to do both, playing both positions, be a mom and a dad for us, you know, like to the point where we used to get her like Father's Day cards just because she just did such a great job at like trying to balance that for us. Um, but I just had no idea of like what a dad looked like, except outside of some of my friends that were older at the time, you know, that I was kind of rolling with that had kids. And so I would just kind of emulate what they did as, you know, as dads. But um, I was just looking for like just a way to just make it work and try to get like my hopes and dreams of like being rich one way um, to switch over to being successful in a way that my daughter could be proud of. Or if she brought home a guy like me, I could be like, oh, okay, he's cool. He's going somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. But t- yeah, Tommy, Tommy's Instagram back then would have been all over the place. <laughs> Changing by the month or every yeah, couple of months. It, yeah, it would have been anything. I mean, I've had a few handles since, you know, between, you know, the, the start of this whole thing to Tommy runs. So what was that transition like from Detroit, Midwestern city to Small town, New England, really. Yeah. I mean, Newburyport, that entire area. I mean, they're not really big towns. They're outside of Mm-mm. Boston. I'm really curious what that was like when you arrived there. What were your initial impressions? Uh, culture shock, number one. I mean, because like you know, Newburyport's a great city, but I mean, it's it's I mean, it's a very wealthy city. It's not like it's. I think at the time, I think in 2007 or eight or whatever it was, I think the at the median like house sale or home sale was like. 600 something thousand at in you know back then mm-hmm. um and so it was just it was you know all white you know and much different than detroit where i was living at the time when i left you know and so i remember coming there like with my you know i had on to all the stuff i would have worn normally you know and i remember with the first day i got there i'm like i'm gonna walk down to the store because it was you know no reports pretty tight 
so I'm walking down the store down the street and I'm like, I just felt like a sore thumb, not obviously because you know I'm a black guy walking down the street, but then just kind of realizing that I was out of place in so many different ways, you know, and it was just a severe culture shock, but I, I welcomed it because like, you know, I needed that a change. I didn't know what type of change I needed, but I needed something. So I just kind of embraced, you know, everything I could, I guess, you know, while holding on to like who I was as well. You know, there's, you know, I, I didn't feel the need to like, to just have like a stranglehold on like what I thought I was, but I did know that I needed somewhere to remember like where I came from, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so it was a really, it was a, uh, a good time, but it was, it was, um, it was a lot of change took place within the first few years, you know, of who I thought I was, what I thought was important. Um, because like in new England, it's not in the city. Um, there's a few, there's a lot of things that are important to us in, it, a lot of it is very uh, materialistic, you know? Um, and so going there, I mean, obviously you see all this, you see all this money. I mean, you see these houses that are, you know, millions of dollars right on the water and you don't see, you know, you don't see any of the big cars like that or the ones that we thought we really needed or wanted or things that are on TV that we just thought was our, our symbol of success, you know? So like seeing people very well off, like just drive a, uh, F-150, you know, and pull up to a $5 million house, you know, and it was just different. Cause like at that time, you know, if I had enough money, you know, you, you're going to know it, <laughs> but every chance that, 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 that I get to show you, you're going to know it. So it was just really cool to see what else is out there and kind of round out like my opinion of like, of, of life a little bit differently. In the time that you spent there, did you eventually feel welcomed or did the place feel like home to you? Um, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say it felt like uh, like home, home, um, just because it's it, there's just not enough of um, people that grew up like me or look like me even to, to feel at home. And then so, but I did feel comfortable. I felt, because I started working, you know, the, the company I worked for, it was based in Newburyport. So I never, I, I felt like I, I, I didn't feel as out of out of place as I grew to know the area, know things around. But it's always that like you're one, two steps away from being like, you know, one of the gang. You know, like I definitely wasn't that. You know, I found I had some friends that were um, didn't live in the area, but I just kind of met them through different people, and they kind of shared a similar background as me. Um, but. I definitely know that when I, I thought I would like, you know, I don't ever want to go back to Detroit because it's, you know, life is different. I don't need all that. I don't need any problems and all that stuff. Um, but when I finally moved back here, I realized like all of what I was missing. And I think maybe I felt like I was home at one point there, but then when I came home, I'm like, Oh, this is, this is where home is, you know? Yeah. That resonates with me on, some level because i've lived in california now for 10 years but spent the first 28 of my life in massachusetts and i think when you're in a place for that long yeah it definitely feels like home but there are certain things you don't notice or you just take for granted or go completely over your head and then when you're away for a period of time and you know your case six seven years i mean i go back try to go back home you know once a year or something like that but it's enough of a gap that when i do it does feel more like home or a place that 
I'm connected to and I can appreciate things or notice things mm. that I didn't notice when it actually was my home when I was growing up. Yeah. It was just the way that that things were. And it's really interesting to me just how that happens, no matter you know where you're from, where you end up and what those feelings are like when you head back. Yeah, and then, and then I think too, like the you know the the twenty three and under version of me was definitely more interested in other things as well. You know, like it wasn't, I, you know, and I think it took me to leave to come back to see the things that I didn't even. I not that I was overlooking. I just couldn't see. I mean, I couldn't see right. some of the things that I could see now. I didn't. The only path in my you know, even though my mom had a good job and all that, like, but my only path as as like a black man in that area to where I thought I wanted to go was this this very destructive, dangerous road that I chose to go on because that's what we wanted to do, mm -hmm. you know? So like I had to take a step away to come back to even see like the beauty of, of like my culture and the beauty of, you know, the neighborhood in Detroit and, you know, black folks in, in general, you know, I had to, I had to see what else is out there and I had to reshape like what I wanted out of life to be able to see, to open my eyes, to see all the good that there is here, you know? I want to come back to that, but before we do, and before we leave the Massachusetts chapter mm -hmm. of your life, while you were there, you're a new dad, new husband, starting new job, settling into a new area, aside from taking care of your family and working what were some of your other interests or things that you were involved in um there nothing man drinking <laughs> um no nothing really like i mean it was just really about work and just trying to figure out how to make more money um legally and just trying to figure it out and um just and then drinking slowly just became more of a thing i mean i started drinking when i was when i when i was like 17 or whatever and we started me and drinking started off pretty quick we can't. We became fast friends, um, but I when I moved there, I tried to slow down because I wanted to like, you know, start fresh. I, you know, it was supposed to be a new beginning for me, so I slowed down for a bit. But as I like got more comfortable, started making more money to be able to even afford like to go buy something, you know, and mm -hmm. and not feel like I'm not like I'm missing like gas money or a bill or something like that. Um, then I just kind of leaned into that more. Um, went back to school while I was there, um, and which I thought I'd never do, and thought I was too dumb to do it. You know, honestly, for some reason. Um, but then I went back to Northern Essex. I'm sure you're familiar with that too. Yeah. And went there for like almost two years and had like a GPA of like 3.9 something or whatever. And it was just like, I didn't know I was that person until like I, you know, wanted to do it and wanted to be there. Um, so school, drinking here and there. Um, and end up started, I started cooking a lot while I was there too, just because we started watching Food Network and that stuff looked good. So I was just all into food, drinking in school, I guess. What did you study when you went back to school? Uh, I think I was just, I mean, I had, didn't go have any college before that. So I was like real, uh, you know, entry Family level. But, yeah. But then I, I like somehow got hooked into like accounting, like what, like the teachers there or the instructor there were trying to get me to go to, um, uh, UMass, um, Amherst, I think it is. Mm -hmm. uh, the, whatever one had like a really great accounting side of things. I can't remember the name of it now. But There's like at least three UMasses that come to mind off the top of my head. Amherst, Boston, and Dartmouth. But yeah, Lowell too. There's four right there. So I don't know which one the accounting program. Yeah, really one of them was that. there and they were like, they're really trying to get me to do that. And I was 
pretty, I was d- definitely considering it, but then I started making more money and I'm like, yeah, I ain't got time for that. But um, I'm glad I didn't because I ended up, I probably wouldn't be here. So that's cool. Um, but yeah, it was just all about, you know, just trying to make a way to figure out what's next for me and the family. You mentioned how you and alcohol became fast friends when you were 17 hmm. years old. Talking about it in the context of a friendship, when did that relationship become fraught or reach a point hmm. where you recognized it was problematic? Um, probably, uh, probably when it was like, I don't, um, I don't even, I don't know what year it was. Um, I mean, my kids were, you know, I, cause I, you know, I had my daughter first, my son three years later. Um, I mean, I would say like right around like maybe like 2012 or so. I mean, I, I drank a lot, like just, you know, kind of as a young, as, as a teenager to 20 something year old, but I, it was all, you know, in my mind, it was all like what everybody was doing. You know, mm-hmm. I wasn't just like alone drinking. So I just didn't have, think there was an issue. Um, I never like lost my job because of it. And so I didn't see myself as like, you know, the alcoholic, you know, cause when you see like, when I pictured an alcoholic at one point, it was like, you know, the one that can't keep a job, he's out in the street, that type of thing. Um, but I was, it was, I was a functional alcoholic. So I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. But as I like started to make choices to, you know, drink before work, because, you know, the, I thought that like, you know, like maybe I'll, if I drink now, I'll feel a little bit better, just kind of keep this thing going. Um, when I started drinking before work, you know, that was when I knew like, hey, we're, we're all the way in here. And even then I still had like this, I told myself that it was fine because I mean, I'm still making good money. Um, I'm still bringing in clients because I was in sales at the time and I'm traveling for work, which I never thought I would do. I mean, the problem was I was in places and situations that I'd never thought I'd be in, in a good, in the best way possible. Mm-hmm. So how can I, how can this be a problem? You know, how can, how can I, how can this alcohol be a, an issue? Cause we've been, we've been cool for a while, you know, it's uh. but I think right around when like, it just was starting to kind of overtake all situations. That's when I knew like, this is getting a little out of hand, but I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say it was fraught until, um, Maybe I stopped in 2017. I think it was probably maybe 2015, 16 is when I just, there was no, and I was working at home at that point here. And we had moved back here. There was no way I could, I was just, I went nowhere without a drink or had one, drinking one or something, you know? Um, Just to think about how many times I probably, you know, and how many times I drank and drove with, it feels terrible, but like with my kids in the car, you know? and. And you just justify everything. Like there's, it's it's dark. I mean, you it it's just blatant. I mean, like right now, it's like blatantly irresponsible and just wildly dangerous. But in the moment, you're just like, you're fine. I can drive. I'm good. You know. And thank God that I never had an issue. Um, I got into a couple car accidents. You know, or I got into a car accident that was pretty ridiculous, but. Um, you know, I didn't get hurt and no one was in the car. So I just brushed that off as like a, you know, an accident, you know, and, um, yeah, drinking is uh, an alcohol had definitely had a big part of, of who I am and what, and was. Was there a specific 
moment or incident that woke you up, whether you realized it yourself or someone said to you, Tommy, this is problematic. You're really going down a bad road here. And if you don't turn this car around, no, no pun intended yeah. right now, um, you know, you're, you're heading full steam, you know, into a, you know, into a big crash. No, I, uh, well, it, there was a moment, but I, I didn't have anybody that really said that. I mean, like my mom and people, you know, kind of like would ask about it, you know, are you mm -hmm. okay? You know, but they wouldn't, it wasn't like directly, you drink too much, you know? Um, because I think, I mean, I, I was able to, somehow I was able to manage like my, my level, you know, like I wasn't like fall down, you know, or crazy, angry, whatever. It was just a smooth, like all the time thing, you know, and I was able to manage that fairly well. So I didn't have any like interventions, you know, but it was really the, the, you know, the, the drinking in the shower in the mornings before work and the, and the just constant, like uncontrollable, you know, urge. And if I didn't have any money, I'd piece together something to drink something, you know? Um, and even no matter how many times, like I would say like, Hey, I'll stop for a little bit of time. Like I'll stop for a week. You know, we do that. Like we play that game where we're going to stop doing something for a little bit or, you know, start this new habit. And when I couldn't stop for seven days or a day, you know, you start gaining and building up all these losses, like on the, you know, Tommy zero alcohol, 7,000, you know what I'm saying? And one year it was, I think it was, you know, the December, like 2016, I, you know, my friend um, was like, Hey, uh, we were just talking about something. And I think it was like an issue with one of our marriages or something like that. And we're like, yeah, maybe we should just stop drinking for like a month. Let's do, let's do the new year's Eve resolution thing that we always try, but let's do it for mm -hmm. a month this time, you know? And so he's, so I'm on board. I got a buddy to do it with me. And we both said, you know, no drinking. Um, and four days in, uh, we partied. We partied together, of course, New, New Year's Eve, um, day four. Um, we we were back over his house. He was like, you know what? I'm just gonna drink wine and stuff. I'm not gonna no liquor for me. I'm like, well, no, I'm not gonna do anything. You know, so we're uh, we're together, two couples together, just having fun, watching movies and stuff like that. And then we decided to sleep over there. Our kids are asleep and all that stuff. And like, it, I did good drinking water three or four in the morning, I woke up and was just like, you know, I could have a drink, you know, like, but like at three, four in the morning, everybody's asleep. So I go in the kitchen, talk myself into this thing. I'm standing there looking at this bottle. I pour, I pour the drink and I'm standing there looking at the glass. And it's just like this long, you know, I probably felt like I was there for 30 minutes, probably lasted two minutes. I don't know, but I drank it, you know, and I, then I had like another one. And then I, you know, fell back, fell back asleep, but then just woke up that next morning, just so like embarrassed of myself. No one saw it, but I was just like, I'm just so tired of losing to this thing. And that's when I realized I had no control. I was helpless. You know, I had no power over it whatsoever. And that's when I was like, I need something different because this whole, you know, do it myself or do it the way I've been trying to do it is just not working, not working, not working at all. So I just kind of gave that up and used and just, to, you know, in alcoholics, you know, and addicts in general, um, we use so many different like tactics to, to manipulate situations, um, to like lie our way out of things or just shift things around to make it feel like 
it's not about us and we're not being selfish. And um, so at one point I'm like, you know, my mom called me and she's like, Hey, how's everything going? I'm like, that's not going so well. And instead of me just saying like, mom, I'm out of control. This alcohol is too much. I said, yeah, the family's just too much going on and I'm, I'm not, I'm not happy or whatever. Um, I mean, it was all like a lie just to tell half of a truth, you know, just to say I'm not happy out loud. And then, so she's like, you know, check out employee assistance programs. Most companies have it. So I did. And they called and they said, hey, they had to do a, do a screen. When I always say that too, like if you are going through anything like mental health, whatever, and if you have a, a job that will offer an employee assistance program, just call that number because they'll they'll ask you a series of questions. Just tell the truth if you can, you know, and they'll pair you with someone that fits what you're what you're looking for and what you may need and it's worth a shot because a lot of times your employee assistance program will let you get you know it'll be like two or three or whatever uh, sessions for free you know so i they called and they did a screening i uh, got to the question about the alcohol thing i've been lying to doctors for years at this point you know one or two drinks a week you know whatever no you know all those things um and i used to ask me how many times i drank a, a, a week and i told them like i'm not even sure and they said, how many times a day? And I said, at least four or five, six, maybe. And they're like, alcohol or, you know, or liquor or beer. And I'm like, what, whatever you, all whatever, the above, whatever, whatever, whatever. So I told them the truth and that felt great. And they paired me with somebody who uh, happened to be a, you know, a marriage family counselor, but mainly uh, specialized in addiction and substance abuse. So got there with her, tried to do my little dance and say how smart I am and this and that and try to play around with it. And she's like, okay, so I think you should go to AA. Um, and I know somebody that's going, he's around your age-ish. Just try to go with him and see if you like it. And that then it was off to the races from there. Did the act of just admitting to someone else who you didn't know for mm-hmm. the first time that you were drinking four, five, six times a day feel like a weight off of your shoulders at the time? Yeah, yeah. It was a huge, huge uh, burden that just like, and I didn't, I was watching a show the other day and, and the guy made a decision to like stop doing something. And he was like, the next morning, he was like, I woke up this morning with the with the weight off my shoulders that I didn't know was there, you know? Mm-hmm. And telling this this person over the phone that first time, like of just telling the truth was like, I didn't know what was after that. I didn't know what would what this was gonna lead to, but I do know that it was the first thing that I did in a long time that you know that I that I personally did for me that felt good. You know? It was like a gift to myself to like just to just admit something for once. And that was huge. I appreciate you sharing all that, your own experience, but especially just about patterns of addiction in general. Now, in my own family, this isn't something that I've talked about publicly all that much. There have been problems with addiction. My parents, some of my uncles, I've witnessed it my entire life. And I think a lot of people equate addiction with substance abuse. And they definitely Mm -hmm. can and often are connected. But addiction isn't just to substances. But I think that's our kind of natural connection that we make. One thing I have noticed in my own life and some things that I have talked about and tried to work through is a lot of the patterns are the same. Mm -hmm. 
and that people, and we know this, can be addicted to different things, social media, um, food, pornography, yeah. you name it. Um, those addictions are, are out there. And I feel like many of them, they don't get the same stigma as mm -hmm. substance abuse, but people are addicted to, to all kinds of things. I think hearing that and hearing these stories help people to look in the mirror at themselves and say, I have really been struggling with this for a while. And a lot of people just don't know, you know, where to turn. And I really thank you for sharing that because I think there's going to be someone listening to this, whether it is a substance or something else in their life who will now be able to reach out for help. Yeah. Um, whether it's through some employee assistance stuff at work or they talk to, you know, their doctor, or even just to say to their family member for the first time, I think I have a problem with yeah. whatever it happens to be. So thank you for, for putting that out there. Yeah. I mean, and then just anything that like, cause any, anything that you, that you do consistently that's harm, that's harmful or destructive or to you or your family, you know, um, or can be, you know, cause like that was the problem was like the drinking thing. Like it's, it's not, you know, you, you don't die right away from it, you know, um, hopefully, you know what I mean? Um, and if you don't get into a car accident or whatever, it's, it just flies under the radar for so long mm -hmm. and you could be full blown alcoholic and somehow manage to be functional and everything's fine, you know, and not from the outside looking in, if nobody knows you walking down the street, they don't know anything different, you know, but if the 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 buildup of this habit or this thing that you are doing over and over, if the consequences of that are would would rip your family apart or have you lose too much, then we just you just have to re, you just have to analyze it. You know, even if it's <laughs> clipping your toenails a thousand times a day, you know, whatever it is, if somehow the the end game of that if it all were to come out or something, you just have to analyze it and decide like what's more important. And for me at the time, like just telling that truth, I didn't know how I was going to get here. If you told me I was going to be sober for five years, I would have told you, even at that moment, I would have told you that you were insane. You know, there's no way, you know, I, I just needed to get better or something, but you never know what, what dropping a lifelong seeming like a lifelong habit can do for you. Yeah. Thank you for that as well. Just to share a little bit about my own story in the case that someone listening to this might be able to relate to it. I quit personal social media. I have someone who runs the Morning Shakeout account for me back September 21st, 2020. I remember the day, like my dad can tell you the day that he stopped drinking. He knows exactly when it was. Mm -hmm. And I looked back, especially in the two or so years prior to me just cutting social media completely out of my life, a lot of the patterns that I was exhibiting and able to notice in myself were very similar to what I saw my father go through, what I saw my uncles go through. And I was a functioning, and I never had this diagnosis, so I want to be careful with my words, but I don't have better ones here. So I'm going to use addicts. I was a functioning addict on social media. And I think that could probably apply to different things that are online. I was able to mm -hmm. do my job. I was able to get through the day. I didn't hurt anyone directly. And much like you were describing, like 
I justified to myself like, oh, this isn't this isn't really a problem, mm -hmm. you know, till I really stepped back and was like, I've compromised relationships. I'm posting things not for anything other than like, you know, external validation. It's constantly on my mind like, oh, how is this going to look for, mm -hmm. you know, Instagram or what take am I going to have on X, Y, Z, you know, on Twitter. And I, I know my personality. I'm very kind of black and white. I'm either all in oh, or I'm all that. out. Mm -hmm. And I knew much like my, my dad did when my mom was like, Hey, it's either me or the booth. And he just mm -hmm. poured it all down the sink. And that was the last day he, he ever drank. I was like, I'm just going to delete my accounts. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had to, I had to do that. So listening to you tell your story, and describe these, you know, thought processes and patterns of behavior. I mean, even though the the thing was different, you know, in your case it was alcohol. For me, it was, you know, social media, online behavior type of thing. That there are a lot of parallels mm -hmm. there. So I I hear you, you know, de describing that and speaking for myself. And and I know because people are listening to this, this is going to help others feel just you know less alone in whatever it is that they're struggling with. And I think. There are more people struggling with something than you know we we know or that gets publicized or that people just want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely don't share because because I think it's cool, you know. I, yeah. I mean, I share because you know I, um, you know, it's my you know my mother and father you know separated when I was five. You know, my dad died when I was eight though. You know, and he died at thirty nine years old of a stroke, and I don't know like what situation he was in you know, at the time, I don't know what he was eating at the time, you know, and, but I do know that he was also a drinker. I don't know if he was drinking as much as I was when I stopped, but I mean, I don't, you know, we'll never know, but I, the part of my decision in that was that I, I just felt like I was, I knew the path that I didn't want to go. I didn't, I knew the road I didn't want to get on, but somehow I decided to get the fastest car possible and then get on that road and just gun it. And I did, I felt, and still to this day, oddly, I feel like, I feel like the closer I get to that, that age is like, I feel like I'm, um, not running out of time, but I feel like I have, uh, like a time that I need. I feel like I'm under pressure for some reason, you know? Um, so at the time I'm like, I was doing nothing to help any of this, you know, I didn't, I was doing nothing to help my kids not go through what I was going through. Um, as a 23, 20, even to this day, 37 years old, like I still have things I got to deal with. And I just decided like, I can't do that to them. Yeah. I mean, you're not that far off of the age your dad was when he passed away. Is that something as you get closer to it now, you think about and maybe can look in the mirror and say, well, still got to get past that point, but I feel pretty good about the place where I'm at here as I approach it. Yeah, um, I was. So I, um, I'm a terrible friend because I, I say weird stuff to my friends. So my friend just turned 39 yesterday, and um, I'm like, "Hey, when's the last time you went running?" Because he started running recently, and then he's like, ah, "I haven't in a while, man. I'm starting to put on weight or whatever." And he just had a second kid. And I'm like, um, we started talking about that. He's like, yeah, I just got to make sure my health is good. I was like, well, you know, my dad died at 39. So <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> he knew that already. But I was like, hey, take care of yourself, bro. Like, he knows where my heart is in that. But it's just like, yeah, as I get closer to this, you know, I just, I just 
I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and I and that's not my business really. But what my bit what what I did learn in AA is one day at a time, you know, one moment, one minute, all that at a time. So I know what I'm doing right now. I know that I'm I'm choosing to live a life that it's going to have to be something like sporadic and random, you know. And if I can do whatever it, within my power, what I can control to make sure I'm here as long as possible for my kids, that's all I can do. And that makes me feel good to know that I took I I I took control of the wheel, some so to speak. You know, we can never figure out, we can never predict the future. We we don't know what's around the corner. But you holding the wheel to the to that car is you have a better chance of of just not. You know what I mean? You just have a better chance of of a d- disaster not happening sooner than it should. You know. I want to pivot the conversation to running at this point. And as we do that, we'll transition away from Massachusetts. But before we do, Mm -hmm. I mean, you spent six, seven years there. You weren't a runner at the time. You correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. On that. But were you aware of things like the Boston Marathon or Mm -hmm. the running culture and vibe that just exists in New England because I mean we we met at Boston and that was a big goal for you and I certainly want to talk about that but was that or running just something that you were aware of in the time that you lived there not at all um well I mean I was I was aware of the of the Boston Marathon because you know for people that don't know like New Massachusetts New England really but Massachusetts in that area shuts down everything on Patriots Day. Like everybody knows that the marathon is, is mm-hmm. happening, you know? So like I knew it was happening. I knew what day it was. I knew that, you know, people worked a little less on that day. Some play, some companies were just off that day because of Patriots Day and people would go watch the marathon. So some people wouldn't be in the office because they'd be down in Boston. So I knew all that, you know, um, definitely didn't, wasn't paying attention to the culture. And at the time running to me is, is was a white person's thing, you know, like, so like moving to a white area and seeing white people run, I was like, okay, <laughs> the movies were, do. The movies were right. I, I the, look, look, it's perfect. Um, but you know, and it just it was just a thing that I didn't need to do, or you know, it had no interest in. Um, but we were there though, you know, um, in the in the area, not downtown, but like we were at home um, or at work actually uh, when the bombings happened that year. And was that 2013? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I saw, I, we followed the whole thing and, um, we watched on TV and horror and, and watched like the, you know, them chase these guys, you know, and finally catch one. We, so we were like watching live when they caught them and all that. And then again, you know, the next year I, I still wasn't a runner, but I saw this whole, the city in new England as a whole, you know, rally around like this race and figure out a way to come back and almost come back come back stronger than it was before in in like defiance of whatever that was and they're gonna prove a point super boston like though you know like if you know anybody from boston they'll you know this is how it is you they're gonna they're gonna come right back and they're gonna do it in you know in your face and this is how this is how they're gonna handle it and I just loved that the city, that the Boston Marathon meant so much to the city. So that's that was my extent of like what running looks like. It's interesting to hear you describe it 
like that because I mean, it was certainly a, a hashtag with the motto was Boston strong Yeah, at the time. And I, I think you just encapsulated that perfectly. So you're there, you're not a runner. You move back to Detroit. Big turning point for you is going to AA. And, mm-hmm. you know, as you mentioned, learning to take things one day at a time. When did running or just physical activity become an important thing for you and part of your lifestyle? Well, almost immediately, I guess the last drink that I had was uh, January 10th, 2017. Um, I'm like, hey, I'm going to see this therapist tomorrow, so I can't go drunk. So let's have one more drink and that's it. Um, But maybe a couple weeks into sobriety um, in that journey, I just realized I had all this time you know, I didn't realize how much time I was drinking and, mm-hmm. or, you know, so I'm like, you know what? Um, and I looked at my, started looking at myself in the mirror, like truly what I looked like. And I wasn't a big guy at all, but like my face was, you know, I had gained a lot of weight in my face just out of, you know, maybe high blood pressure. And at the time I was on, before I stopped drinking, I was on, um, on blood pressure medicine that I thought, you know, that the doctor said you have to be on the rest of your life. Um, I had been hospitalized like once for, I mean, I think it was, 160 something or 172 my blood pressure was 172 over 121 um and that was at 22 years old uh i mean at 22 years i'm sorry that's um i was at it was maybe like 26 or 27 but like so i was on these pills for all this time and it just was something i was gonna have to live with um but i started going to the gym like two three weeks into it like hey, i need to lose some of this weight and get in shape and feel better and use this energy that i have you know and so i started lifting weights pretty heavy and got like just change that um, that alcoholic's mindset and use that uh, to go into the gym. So I'd be I'd go to the gym six to seven days a week, and that's just part of my life. And I started to feel good, started to look better, started to just feel like a human being, you know, that was in some type of control of at least myself. Um, the sobriety was going well. Um, I was going to AA meetings and um, working the program and being around people that. I, that resonated with that daily uh, struggle, that daily fight, that daily um, outlook and new way of life, you know? Um, so I was in the gym heavy, like lifting weight. Actually, if you look back far enough on my Instagram, you'll see like I was a much bigger guy because I, li- I was like lifting some pretty big weights. Um, Were you Tommy Lifts back then? I was Tommy. Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, I Were was, you? I was Tommy Guns. I love it. So that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't so know was, that. Yeah, yeah. So it's Tommy Guns, right? <laughs> for so long, you know, for for basically almost a year, you know, and um, that, w- but that part of life was just really cool because I was able to. You can see the change, and I needed to see something. You know, I needed to see some. You know what what this positive change in my life was doing. You know, um, outside of the sobriety because that was helping too. And even and then the thing about just not to go have to go back to that sobriety thing, but it's, it's who I am. The thing about sobriety that I that you know originally when I first got sober, I'm thinking like, okay, everything's gonna be fine, you know. But life still happens, you know. Like I was just coping and like numbing myself through the things that were happening before, and. I thought maybe, oh, the drinking is the problem. So once I stop, then all the rest of it happens. We still have these character issues and flaws that 
that put us in situations that, you know, that we just carry with us unless you address it. And um, that's why AA and, and other things are so helpful is because they give you paths and steps to, to change certain things. Um, but I thought, you know, that was just going to be like a, the silver bullet and everything's gonna be fine, but I needed to, um, get physical to kind of change what I thought about myself in order to try to start, start taking more steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that led to veganism at one point, um, in February of like 2018. Do you think it's true that for people who have addiction issues, whether it's a, a substance or something else. In your case, it wasn't drinking that was the problem. Drinking was the solution to yeah, other problems. Whatever the yeah. whatever the thing is that is problematic um, isn't the real problem in the mind of the addict. That is the solution to whatever the true underlying problem is. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think, you know, in certain points people say like that you know the addiction is is a disease um and you know i think that we all have we may have a a predisposition to certain things um to certain behaviors um and if we're able if certain um, certain people amongst us are able to find a thing that makes that part easier for us then we were off to the races with it, you know, because there's some people that I just was super envious of that like have one drink or two drinks and and have a bottle in their house for six months and you come back and it's still there. Um, But they apparently I thought drank for the same reason as me that day we were partying together, but apparently not, you know. So I think that there's there's people that have a thing and I don't know what you want to call it, but we are definitely like I, I, I don't I can't have a another drink. You know, I know that I don't care how far I get away from, you know, uh, January 11, 2017. I know that I cannot have one drink. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't even have I had this drink. It was like it was like hop tea or something like that. It was like it's like a tea thing, but it has like hot, has hops in it. Zero alcohol. But it tasted it tastes so much like like beer. I just set it back down and walked away because like there's sure. I can't play with that, you know, and um yeah, I'm sorry, I, I kind of lost my my thought there, but yeah, I think that we that there's something there that maybe others don't have to deal with. I'm not sure. Mm. In your experience, once you did become sober, and at first went to the gym, we'll get into running here in a second. But like you just described, you were pretty obsessive about the gym. You were going like every day, just throwing up weight, throwing up weight. And now, you know, I know you run like six days yeah, a week yeah. or so you're, you're training for races. So similar behavior pattern to when you were drinking, you were very consistent at, at doing this thing. Do you find that that's a reason a lot of recovering addicts are attracted to endurance sports, whether it's, you know, running or something else? Um, I, I, I definitely noticed that. I didn't realize that until like, I kind of got deeper into it to see like, you know, like there's a lot of, especially like, um, um, like ultra, you know, like, mm-hmm. but I think there's, I think that, you know, just, just to kind of like make it light. I think that like alcoholics and addicts, I think we're just a little, little messed up in the head, you know? Um, and I think that we are okay with, I mean, we, I'll just speak for myself. So I put myself through so many so like so many dark moments of life. Like I lived through all these things that told me to stop, 
doing this thing that doesn't even make me feel good. Like, you know, drinking isn't like a fun thing after a certain point, you know? Um, so I put myself through all that. And then, so what, what endurance and like lifting and, and running for sure, I feel like I'm good at it because I've been to the pain cave mentally for, for so long, you know, and all signs pointed to stop and I kept going. And so to me in running, I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll never get to a pain cave or a mental pain cave as bad as it was, you know, at my lowest moment in drinking. So I think that I'm just attracted to that because number one, the process, you know, the process is really, is just really cool to do something day in, day out and actually see, see a benefit. Um, so I just, I just got attracted to like that process. And then also I could just stay in this terrible moment for as long as we, we can. Yeah, so you were sharpening these mental tools while you were battling alcoholism that once you became sober, you could actually reapply to this other area of yeah. your life and almost like gave you a little bit of a, a head start versus someone else who is also just starting to run and train for races for the first time. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I said that, I said it before and it was just like, and it sounds crazy, but I mean, I use a lot of the the lessons um, that I learned about myself while drinking, or a lot of the uh, the things that I put myself through, and you know, other people around me through, um, as like, hey, man, if I can if I can be as consistent, um, even when I didn't want to, you know, and keep drinking and keep pushing through and and all that, then I can do almost anything, you know, I can. You know, because in certain things in life too, like there's gonna be signs that tell you like to you should just chill. Like you, your body says sometimes, like no, we don't we don't want to go any farther. Or you know, your mind tells you you can just relax today. Don't do this. Don't do that. We kind of talk ourselves out of good things sometimes. But I'm like, hey, if I can do the worst thing possible, you know, over and over for years, then I can apply this to to this running thing. And um, I just feel like I have a a tolerance for discomfort. You know maybe more than someone that hadn't been through some of the things I've been through. You know what I mean? Yeah. And along those lines, we've seen it even just outside of running. A lot of people who are able to get sober from whatever it is that they're addicted to, if they can put themselves on a positive path, they end up really thriving in whatever it is that they're pursuing, whether it's endurance sports or they apply that to business or some other areas of, of their life. And it's like they had that wiring, that mindset. It was just applied in a negative way yeah. the, you know, the first time. And then once they were able to kind of unwind that and put themselves on a better path. I mean, you're a great example of this. I think of, you know, Rich Roll. I think of others who mm -hmm. I, I admire now. And it's like, wow, they just needed to get put on the, the right path because they had the skills all along. They just weren't applying them in a productive or positive way. Yeah. And I think that like a lot of times um, we, you know, for me, I used alcohol to I thought I was using it to be somebody that I wanted to be like and be more comfortable and, you know, be a funner person or whatever it was. And then also to like numb certain thoughts or feelings or just not deal with it. Um, but in in reality, like 
being able to to like take to pull the veil off you know because you know this fog is just on your life and you can't see very far everything's really you know, up close having like to 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 live life with this fog and not really ever being able to see too far too much too you can't see any farther than like the next drink or or like how you're going to get out of this next issue you put yourself in but once you finally lift that now all of a sudden you got this great this random sight that's like holy crap like this is what other people have been seeing and i think that often too it's like that time where i feel like i have to make up for lost time you know cuz i felt like i was doing nothing even though i was doing all right at the job or whatever i just felt like i was on a on a treadmill for mm. years and you finally get to get off that so for me it just like i excelled because like i feel like i just have to keep going to make up for the time that i was just wasting away you know um that's just like kind of my look at it we've been talking for almost an hour now we've barely scratched the surface of talking about running at all and i'd love to just geek out for the remainder of the time that we have left on your journey as a runner and then just some topical things in running so we left off and you are getting in the gym multiple days per week you're tommy guns when did tommy guns start transitioning to becoming tommy runs um so uh, a client of mine um through work, through my job was like hey we're raising money for a, a nonprofit called move for hunger um and we're gonna run the uh every year they run the half marathon the uh, chicago rock and roll mm-hmm. and he's like you know you're in detroit area you're not too far you should come on over raise some money have a good time you li- you lift weights you're in the gym so you can run that's you know, i'm like all right sure whatever client says it let's do it so i started like kind of training a little bit in like air quotes on training because that meant to me um <laughs> terrible shoe choice uh and just run as fast as you can for as long as you can and then do it again and again um got hurt in that process i think i had a a stress fracture in like one of my metatarsals um still ran the half um and and i just didn't number one i didn't die because like you know like 13 13 13.1 miles just seems like kind of crazy to think about when you're new to something like that Mm -hmm. um but then just starting that race and then finishing crossing that finish line and like seeing my family there i was more emotional than i thought i thought i could i just didn't think i'd be emotional i thought like just finish be happy smile high five or whatever you know i think there's been a couple of moments like in my life where i felt like everything was like either gonna like exp- like go terribly wrong like explode or i was gonna like break through something and and go to that next spot and me telling the truth to that like to that person on the phone and then the, to the uh, my counselor, that was like that moment where if I decided to to lie and keep going that way, who knows what would have happened, but I decided to tell the truth. And I felt like that, that finish line in Chicago was like one of those moments where I passed a point where it was like, okay, you know, life isn't what we thought it was, you know what I mean? Um, so after that, then I let the metatarsal heal, you know, so I could try to run again and then just slowly started chipping away and running a little bit more. And one of my friends like kind of joked and was like, man, you ain't Tommy guns anymore. You Tommy runs. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll figure that out. And then one day, like I was just running so much by then just and by so much, I meant like maybe three times, three, four times a week. I'm like, I'll embrace that. That's cool. Cause I was kind of going less in the gym and more running. Um, and then changed the name over to Tommy runs. It hasn't 
Wow. <laughs> and you haven't looked back from there. Yeah, no, I haven't looked back. And and I think it was it was really cool to like it was just a part of the progress, you know, because I had I went I went vegan in February of uh 2018. And my first race that the rock and roll half marathon was in July of 2018. So like I was vegan by the time I uh started running, because I started maybe in May. And I just felt like this new sense of like energy and vitality. Um, so like it would just it seemed like it kind of made sense to do something a little lighter and less like big bulky. It just felt like I needed to be cleaner ish, you know? So like running just fit right into that, that thought. And I was still going to the gym back and forth and lifting weights still, but just less, um, in more like hit workouts and trying to be, you know, get that thing going. But one day I was just like, Hey, I really like this running thing. So I'm just going to spend more time out on the road than I am going to spend, you know, lifting some weights and just kind of just kept going and, checked off some boxes for some races and all that. Take me through the emotions that you experienced when you crossed that first finish line in Chicago. Cause you had just mentioned how they were unexpected. You didn't think you would really break down quite like that, but let's dig a little bit deeper into it. Help me understand just how you were feeling as you came across. Um, I just felt, I felt, I felt proud of myself. You know, and for so long, like, I just didn't feel, I just didn't feel that. And, um, it, it, it probably goes back to, you know, not having, not having my dad around and having to try to figure out life, like, with my mom, you know, to try to be somebody that I thought she needed me to be, you know. And a lot of growing up, I didn't realize, but I, I just wasn't like proud of anything I did, you know? Um, and obviously I was proud of, this, you know, getting sober, but for that first year or so of sobriety, you're just trying to figure out like for, th for 365 days, you got a year of first, like your first birthday without drinking, your first this without drinking, everything was a first, first, first. So the running thing came in like at this perfect time and crossed that finish line at like far enough away, a year and a half sober almost to actually say, wow, like I'm proud of me. You know, I didn't think I'd ever do this thing that I just did. And I finished it. My family's here and I'm proud that I made this happen. And just in my alcoholic life and, and before then even, I just was never, I never could pat myself on the back, no matter how good I did. I, have, I mean, I, got, I was getting paid decent money. Like I had a good job, but everything had this caveat. Like if they knew who I really was, there's no way I'd have this job or there's no way they'd pay me this money or whatever. So this time though, it, you know, you couldn't take that from me. You know what I mean? You can't, there's something about running that no one can take your accomplishments from you in this thing because it, it's only you out there. There's no team sport, you know, um, you can train with people and all that stuff, but you're the one out there that has to put one foot in front of the other. And so when I crossed that finish line, it was just, this is something that I did. Um, and there was no caveat to it. There's no drinking. There's no, is, is I'm proud of everything that I did to get to that point. You know, was that the first time in your life, or at least that you can recollect that you were able to not only show your family who was there, 
but yourself that this is who you truly were? Um, probably. Um, yeah, I guess so. You know, uh, yeah, I never really thought about it like that. That's a, that's a good question. Um, and I think that felt so emotional too, because I didn't even know, you know, even at that point, I didn't know who I was. You know, I knew who I thought maybe I kind of wanted to be or how I wanted to feel. I didn't know how I wanted to be. I knew how I wanted to feel. And I, at that moment, I felt it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then to share that with me and my kids right there, you know, um, I just, it was emotions that I just didn't know were going to be there. It was just weird, you know, and I yeah. felt like I introduced myself to myself that day. I feel like a lot of addicts suffer alone and oftentimes in silence and secrecy. But here you were able to celebrate with the people who mattered most to you. And that's not something that you could do when you were an alcoholic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the alcohol, like I was talking to my daughter, I mean, yesterday she's 14 or whatever. And we're just talking about like lies, you know, like and secrets because, you know, secrets, and lies are just so invasive. Like, and as soon as you start telling them, you know, if there is no end to, to them and the alcoholic lifestyle or, you know, an addict's lifestyle is all lies, you know, like it's all like secrecy of some sort, you know, and even when people knew I was drinking, they didn't know that how much I had before I got to that point. Cause it's all shame and secret. And at one, at, for the first time, like I, I was running in front of people I didn't know. I was running with people I didn't know. Everybody would, could see what I was doing. I hadn't, didn't have a drink that morning, so it's like I didn't have anything to like fall back and you know imposter syndrome myself to death about. And it, it was just on display for people to like watch and happen, and that felt foreign. And um, it's something I still like relish to this day. You had nothing to hide. Nah, no, nah, except for that KT tape. The <laughs> <laughs> like KT tape was, yeah, shameless plug for KT tape. I'm not even sponsored, but that was like the only way I was getting through that thing. <laughs> well, let's talk through that. So in the weeks leading up to this race, you knew something wasn't right. Might have been a, oh, a stress yeah. fracture, but your foot was hurt. You, you held yourself together literally by KT tape. You crossed the finish line. It's this emotional experience. You mentioned how you gave yourself some time to physically recover afterward. Once you did, once that injury healed, where did it go from there? Because you had mentioned leading up to this race, I mean, you trained in air quotes, but Mm -hmm. you had no idea what you were doing. Did you want to explore running a bit further at that point or to think about it a little differently than you were before to see where you could take it? Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely, like, as soon as the, the foot got better, um, I just, I think it was, it took me a little little bit to get back into it, but I think in the fall of 2018, I, I started um, just kind of running here and there. Um, and I went to, like, this, um, my, my son was at a camp or whatever for, like, Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts and ran into somebody that also ran. She ran ultras. Um, and so we just went for a jog one day and we started you know, we lived in the same area, so we jogged a lot together. And she was kind of the one that just kind of she would. I wouldn't have run in four or five days. She'd hit me up and say, hey, "You want to go on a long run?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure. Why not run ten miles out of nowhere?" 
Um, so like then I started to realize consistency matters. Um, and even though she wasn't training for stuff, she was still running. So she kind of introduced me like this is more like a way of life type of feel. Um, and so I just kept running. And then one year that, that 2019 in January, I had signed up for this race called, um, stuff like in Midland or something like Michigan in January, cold trail race, 25 K. Um, and luckily it hadn't snowed like that day. So it wasn't like we were running through snow really, but it was a decent January Michigan day, cold though, um, ran this race and, um, did well, you know, I kept every time I would race, I had like these these expectations of like who I thought I wanted to be. Like I didn't know like an hour, thirty minute half marathon was <laughs> was fast. I just like, well, I'm gonna try to do that, but it just never happened um, or that early. And then um, did this race in in January, and that's when I was like, and I did okay. I don't even remember what my time was for the twenty twenty five. I think it was maybe like an hour fifty or something like that. I don't know, but I was like hey, I really do like this thing and I want to get better. And that's that was the, the the thing from just running every now and then to like, let's try to get better. Um, and then that's actually right around the time Boston you know, came into sight, oddly. What were those next steps? You obviously learned quite a bit from your running partner. Did you start picking up books or looking into coaching or take me through well, it? Well, so like, yeah, like the, 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 you know, like you said earlier, it's like black or white. So it's either all or nothing. Right. So, the, and that's one thing I've noticed about myself that, um, was one of my, the, the alcoholic traits was like, just, I was all, all in or nothing, but I didn't know that I was like that with other things. I was only like that with alcohol, you know, mm-hmm. um, I didn't have time to place that anywhere else, but so I'm like, Hey, if I'm gonna do this running thing, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to try to figure this thing out and, and figure out what's next. So my sister's talked to me. She's like, hey, because she lived in Boston, too, at the, you know, around that time at, that I did. And she's like, you should try to run the Boston Marathon. I'm like, I have no idea, like, what that even means. Like, I mean, I know that there's a race, but how do you do it? She's like, well, let's look up the qualifying time. And I think at the time, she's like, you'd need 305 to um, to qualify. And I'm like, well, um, I don't know how to get there. So I um, hit up... Um, Oh, my training partner, well, she was my training partner. We just ran every now and then. She was training through Luke Humphrey running, and one of his coaches trained her for ultras. So she's like, well, let me put you in touch with them. Give them a call, see what they say. And I gave him my goals. I was like, hey, I just started running like six months ago or so. Um, I want to qualify for Boston. And he's like, all right, well, let me get you plugged up with somebody. And he kind of like tried to taper my expectations a little bit. But he said, hey, you know, whatever, you can do whatever you want to do, I guess, you know. So he he paired me up with Melissa Johnson White, who's a Hanson's Brooks uh, athlete, and she and this was like maybe eight or nine weeks out from um, this is right in the middle of summer of like 2019, um, and this is like eight or nine weeks out from the Detroit Free Press, and I'm like, well, you know, I want to I want to try to qualify next year because of course like. Everything has to be like on my time frame. I got to yep. make it happen. I needed something extreme. Like, you know, some people say, hey, start off slow. That works for people, you know? But for me, I knew I needed something scary. I needed something to like constantly work towards. I couldn't do like a, I'm just going to run two, three times a week. That just wasn't who I am, you know? Um, and I was slowly finding that out. And so she's like, you can sign up for the Detroit Free Press. It's only nine or eight, eight weeks, eight or nine weeks out. So we'll do what we can, you know? And I'm like, well, I want to qualify for Boston. What's the time that I need to run here to 
have you believe that I can do the next thing? And she's like, well, if you can run like 315 in your first marathon in a city like uh, a race like the Detroit Free Press, then you're within maybe striking. We can maybe train you down, you know? Um, and I ran 313.30 in my first half. I mean, my first full. Um, and I was happy. I was happy then, but I, uh, it wasn't as emotional as that first finish line. Yeah. Um, but I, that's when I was like, okay, here we go. And we just, it got real serious. Um, I learned a lot of, about running through Luke and through Melissa, a lot about training and what this whole thing looks like. And that's where like the six days, came, six, six day a week thing comes in because um, I just know it's necessary to, for me at the time and now f- to make this progress. So you were just all eyes on Boston at that yeah, point. Yeah, it was like, as soon as I decided like, yep, we're going to do it. I made an announcement like on, on like, uh, oh, you know, it was, it was YouTube. I think if you go to my YouTube channel, like there's this video, I shouldn't even say it cause I don't want people to look at it, but it's way, way back. It was like the day that I decided I'm going to run Boston. I made a YouTube video just to make it even more like dramatic to myself that you have to do this, go for it. Um, and I made the video. And so since that day, I was just like all in to figure out how I could get there. Um, and then running 313 was just huge. And and I knew it wasn't even an attempt. It was. It wasn't like I. I didn't try to run three hundred five. I tried to run three fifteen, and I was proud of the 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 progress that I had made. So we just got to work like immediately after and um, got really fit. You know, did runner fit into your identity at that point? If someone asked you, "Hey, Tommy, like, what do you like to do?" Would you have said, "Yeah, I'm a." I'm a runner. I'm doing this, you know, five, six days a week. I'm training for these different races. Or did you not think of yourself in that way necessarily, even though you obviously knew that you were running quite a bit at that point? Oh, no, I embraced it like wholeheartedly. I mean, because I mean, for so long, I was something that I couldn't tell everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to admit to everybody. So for once, like I'm doing something every day, you know, or often, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm taking it, you know, like, yeah, I'm I'm proud of it for sure. I'm proud of this thing, you know? And, um, so I embraced it wholeheartedly. And then that, that was, was what was so exciting. I was doing something that, uh, consistently that I could broadcast if I wanted to, to the world and I could share with other people, you know, openly. And that was just a, that was a, that was something I definitely needed. And I was, I, I jumped all in. I, yeah, I had, by then I had changed my name to Tommy Runs before the, uh, did that before the marathon. So I was in there all the way. It sounds like you started to share your journey right from the very beginning. That YouTube video that you just mentioned, which I am going to look up after we get oh, off of fine. this interview because I, I want to watch it. But I know that's just a, a big part of what you do now mostly through Instagram, but you have YouTube as well. You've got a podcast, which I want to talk about, but I mean, you are someone who shares every step of your running journey, the highs, the lows, everything in between. I mean, you did eventually spoiler qualify for Boston. You had Mm -hmm. a knee injury going into that coming out of it as Mm -hmm. well. And that's something you were open about. Was that strategic or was that just something that kind of came naturally to you? You were like, all right, this is just what I'm doing now. And I'm going to share this journey for anyone who's interested in following it. Well, I mean, I was, I was into like, um, uh, like content creation, I guess on LinkedIn for my job. So I was doing a lot of like sharing there, but I wasn't sharing personal life stuff. I was sharing like work things to, 
you know, promote myself as a, you know, whatever I was doing, you know, my salesmanship or whatever. Um, so I was very used to like making videos and doing that. So it just kind of came natural to like put that out there. Um, and you watch other people, you know, do videos about they're going to do this or they're going to do that or, you know, and they've got all these followers. And I don't know if I did it because I want followers or I just, maybe I did, but I, I, I just, it was natural. It felt natural for me to say something like that. Um, and I did, I wouldn't say it's it's, uh, strategic, really. I think it was more, it seemed like the thing to do. Um, but looking back, it definitely like locked me into it a little bit more. And then it, once you say, I'm going to do this, you have like, I have this urge then to now keep sharing, you know, and I've, I'm an overshare at this point, you know? Um, but I feel like the, the farther I get along this, this journey, the more I share within reason there's, I'll, can I say, I'll take a back, step back for a second. So when I w- went to my first AA meeting, you know, um, walked into a room full of people that didn't look like me at all. And they were older. They had nice cars probably outside, all that stuff. I do not belong here. You know, they don't have my background. They cannot understand me, you know. And I started hearing these people share their stories. And each one of them basically said exactly how I feel before I even shared mine. They were sharing their own stories, but I connected to them. And that's how I knew, that's where I knew I belong here in these rooms. And so from that moment and that experience, I know for sure that if you're going through something or working your way through something or got out of something, sharing, even if you felt like you're the only person in the world that's going through that, I you are not. There's millions of people going through whatever it is you're going through. And so that's why I have my urge to share is because if I'm sharing, someone else is also thinking the same thing as I am. And maybe I could help them or maybe just me sharing could get somebody to reach out that could help me. You know, like I always joke and say like sharing is caring when I want something from somebody, but sharing is, is caring. And I feel like that's what kind of led me into just being so open because every time I do share, someone reaches out and says, thank you in some way, shape or form. So mm-hmm. that's how I got there. Is there also an accountability aspect to it for you that by sharing or by putting your goals out there, it just kind of keeps you on it every day and keeps you honest? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely, especially in the beginning, because it's like you just, if you're, on, if you're on to something good, sometimes you just want to figure out a way to make sure you stay locked in. And sharing a lot is obviously like, um, sometimes, it, you know, social media can be bad because it's like you, you do things like you're just driven to do things because, you know, just because, but sometimes you can use it as I use it as a tool just to kind of keep the fire going, you know? And, you know, I'm Tommy runs now. Like, so, um, I got to run, I guess, you know, I got to keep running and I got to keep going. And I wanted to though. It wasn't like, I, I didn't feel pressured, but it was just a way to those days where I didn't feel like it so much. Um, it was maybe in the, in, you know, subconsciously like, Hey, dude, you got to get out here. Go do your thing. So you run 313 at Detroit Free Press. You come in under that 315 goal that your coach told you, Hey, if you can do this, you're on the right track to run that sub 305 that you're eventually going to need to run Boston next year. So you've got at least one partner that you've talked about that you ran with. You've got a coach now you're on a training program you're identifying as a runner, as you just described, did you feel a part of a community? Mm-hmm. Because here you are, a 
black man living in the Detroit area, which I think is a very underrated area for running in the country. And that's a whole nother discussion for maybe later in this mm-hmm. conversation. But did you feel a part of something bigger than yourself, whether it was in the area where you lived or, you know, on a on a wider scale through YouTube, Instagram, and various ways of being connected to people online? Yeah, uh, I definitely felt like, so I, I, I'll answer like in two parts. Physically, like, you know, in the, in the area, I, um, I had got connected with, um, through like Instagram, um, through, uh, to a group called We Run 313. They're in the Detroit area. They had just started up not too long before I kind of joined up for one of the runs and they were, you know, pre- predominantly black group. So it was some young dudes out there running and I ended up hooking up with them like on the weekends and do it, would do like long runs with them. So I felt like I was kind of part of that, but I was still like an outsider because I wasn't like going to all the runs. Um, but I just felt like I had a small like connection to the community uh, that was kind of was growing at the time. Uh, but then on a on a different scale, like on the uh, social media type level, um, I definitely felt started to feel more uh, like I was connected to random people around the country just because we did this thing called running, you know. Um, and if I ever had a bad day, you know, overshare again, I would share it and people would answer and have thoughts and stuff like that. So, you know, there's, these things can be used, like, you know, social media can definitely be used as a tool if it's if it's done the right way. Um, I agree. So I felt like, at the time, I felt like I was part of, like, this small growing community um, in Detroit, uh, Detroit running. Um, but then also I was kind of tapping into, like, what else is there. Um, I didn't feel like... I knew I was a runner. I felt like a runner, but I didn't feel like attached to the running community because everything's so, you know, until you start really going to a bunch of different races and you really start communicating with people and seeing what's out there, you still feel like you're just an individual runner that may run with a couple of groups. Um, so at that time, um, I just felt like I was still trying to, I was worried about my journey, but I felt like I was right ahead my fingertips on like things that could be a little bit bigger, you know? Yeah. Not to fast forward and skip over too much but how do you feel now that you've been in it for quite a few years at this point you know you're still based in the detroit area you run with groups there i mean we met at boston you've been to a number of other events as things have opened up again over the past two years has it changed for you um yeah yeah for sure like i feel i definitely feel like i'm absolutely more like intertwined with like the detroit run community um, and what's growing here, um, and also feel more uh, welcome and, uh, and attached to the running community as a whole. Uh, I feel like at this point now, especially after Boston, I feel like I have an opportunity and an obligation to continue down this road uh, to help be and push forward the Black representation in this space of running and outdoor um, activity. Um, so that I still feel, feel like I'm one with the community in some sense, but I still feel like there's a lot of work that needs to be done for, you know, me to feel more comfortable, but then others to see this as a choice of, a, as, as a lifestyle, instead of just um, pointing at other groups saying that, the, oh, that's what they do. Yeah. Listening to you describe that, I mean, I I can't help but smile because earlier in this conversation, you talked about when you moved to Newburyport, which is a fairly 
affluent, very affluent, very yeah. white area. And you would see white people running in your words. This is just what they do. That was your perception as a non-runner at the time coming from Detroit. And then to listen to you describe how you move back home, you know, you become part of Run 313, which is right yeah, in we, your... Yeah, we, we Run 313, yeah. We Run 313, which is right in your you know, backyard. And it's a predominantly black group mm -hmm. in the inner city, correct me if I'm yeah, yeah, wrong, yeah. Yeah. which is not something that you would, would typically see. And I think we yeah. need to see more of that just around the country. And I mean, you know, it, the running culture in one city versus another, it's, it's going to be different. It shouldn't be the same mm -hmm. yeah, right. in, in two different places. But I think, you know, the more we can have that representation, people see what you're a part of in Detroit and they want to start it in their area where there might not be something. And that spreads. And I think that helps to just connect more of the community at large and, yeah. and show everybody like, Hey, Regardless if you're from inner city Detroit, if you are from, you know, affluent Newburyport, you live in the suburbs of San Francisco, which I do, we share a lot more in common through this thread of running than we do the obvious differences. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I, and I just, I, I feel like, I feel like that's true, you know? Um, and I think that, as you run and the more you connect with other people that also run, I think that those connections can be made, but it's, um, it's still, even from, even for me, like it's still so far, um, from away from, you know, really feeling like, oh yeah, we're, we're all the same. Cause there's, I mean, race in this country is, it, it, it's never been what it, what we'd like for it to be. Right, you know, right. just the just that is what, what the way it is, um, and the black running community, at least in the younger you know side of things, um, you're seeing you know a lot of run clubs open up throughout the country and 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 follow in the footsteps of other run you know clubs that have been out for a long time. There, there's comp there's clubs that are kind of following the footsteps that we run through on three, um, and I think that at this moment it's. For me and for us, I feel like it's super important to build this black running community and for any minority to build that community up as strong as possible to know that, that we have, like when I go off to Boston, um, I know number one, my family's behind me, but I know that I know that I have a group of people that believe in me, that understand, you know, also who I am, you know? And that's not to discredit anyone that also believes in me, you know, that doesn't know exactly like what and who I am. Uh, so I, I appreciate all support, but I think it's so important for the, each community to build up this support system, like behind the scenes that may, it's in, it's, it's not tangible, you know, but it's just there. So, cause like when I was in a couple of rooms and, you know, like I was on a, on a panel for you can, or even in the, you know, the panel for Tracksmith, it's it still it still kind of sucks to like look around a room and one hand not even a full one hand you can count how many people that are there that look like me and have had similar experiences as me you know and that's unfortunate you know but 
that's why I think it's also super important for me and other people that are out here doing this thing on the other side of running, which is kind of like involved in the industry and mm-hmm. doing, you know, interviews and podcasts and doing this with you. Um, it's important for us to keep pushing this narrative um, to not let someone else know that may be watching and then may feel like they're still on the outside looking in to go see somebody on the inside and say, oh, okay, then, you know, I could take this extra step and how do I get there? Yeah, I think it's so important. It's part of what I'm trying to do through this podcast is really, I mean, on one hand, regardless of who you are, show people what's possible through the lens of running. And you've done that through sharing your story, but also just to show people who are paying attention to it. Maybe they pay attention to it because I have elite athletes on every once in a while, or I have top coaches on every so often, but then I'll have someone on such as yourself or Jingwan Lu Tervalon, who I just had on, you know, a couple of weeks ago, sharing, you know, their experience as someone who doesn't look like me, doesn't live in the same area. And just letting other people know that not everyone is going to look like you. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can welcome those people into this community, the more of people, the more people who, who look like the folks that I have on are going to pay attention to them and want to be a part of it. And I think just the Mm -hmm. richer and more diverse, like the entire running community you know, can be. And and I hope more of that continues to happen. I feel like for you sitting in a room like at Tracksmith, like we were in Boston last month and be able to count on less than one hand, the number of people who look like you, you know, in the room, like there's still clearly progress to be made, mm-hmm. but I feel like we've, we've made some in the last couple of years. And if we can keep this momentum going, I mean, you know, life will never be perfect for anyone, but we can make it better and we can make it more welcoming and we can make it more inclusive. And, you know, I, I just really hope collectively as an industry, as a community, we can do that together. And and I think if I could add to that too, like, I think it's, you know, the, you mentioned welcoming a few different times and it's like, um, I think the, I think for a while now too, I mean, the, the running community has been welcome, you know, and for the most part, I mean, obviously you have a couple, you have some, uh, people with issues, obviously, um, that we all can agree are, are wild, but it's like you have, uh, it's been welcoming, you know, it's been like, hey, sure, come on out, you know, sure, buy the shoes, sure, sign up for the race, we, whoever, come on out, we're great. But I've heard somebody say too, like, there's a difference between being like, you know, welcoming, and then saying, we built this with you in mind. You know, you, you're not mm-hmm. only welcome, this is for you too. You know, like, it's, you were thought of in the building of this this thing or the putting together of this process. And that's why I think it's super important for brands like Tracksmith to do what they did and brands like you can and other brands that and ASICs that rocked with me in, in Boston to include these people, the people that you're saying that you want to be feel welcome, include the fact that I'm on that panel with getting interview, interviewed by you and sitting up there with Erica as well from, from Black Roses I don't know. I know what that meant to me, but I don't know what it means. What I can imagine how great it felt for someone that looks like me to sit in the crowd and watch me do that. Exactly. You know, and then that's when you start feeling like welcome to the party. Cause when, when, when you're going to a party and the, one of the hosts of the party is somebody that you can vibe with, that's different than saying like, I hope there's another black guy there. You know, like if you go there knowing that this company cares about us enough to have this, you know, guy up here that runs much slower than everybody else up here on a runner's panel, then that means that, that I feel like I'm welcome here, you know? Let's continue this thought experiment. 
a little bit. And I really want to think about it in the context of local community, because everyone listening to this, regardless of where they're from, mm -hmm. are in different areas of, of the country. Their communities are going to look different. And I think that's where we can make the biggest difference in our own lives is where we actually are. What yeah. more do you think can be done in our local communities to, whether it's a, a run group, whether it's an event, Mm -hmm. or something else to have someone like you look at it and say, oh, this was built with me in mind. And this feels like a place where I'm not only welcome, but they had me in mind when you mm -hmm. know they created this event, they started this group, whatever it may be. Yeah, man, I'll be honest. It's That's tough. I mean, and it just, I feel like if um, if you're a brand, and I think I feel like it starts. It starts at at certain, you know, at a different level than, you know, because you don't you don't you don't want to feel as a brand. You don't want to feel like, but then also as a as a person of color or a minority that you're trying to or this this group that you're trying to get to feel comfortable. You don't want to you don't want this person or me to feel like like hey come you know like <laughs> you don't want to make it feel awkward in 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 a stretch or a reach. Um, but it's like like a runs like a run specialty types like a store you know you need to make sure that whoever's working there understands that a person that's not a person that's not comfortable or, or is very new to this space if they come into the, your store and they don't and your staff isn't ready to just be normal <laughs> just be normal and helpful um in that moment, that could that could make a change. If you're a group, a uh, 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 you know, predominantly like white group or something like that, and then you know somebody black comes to the group, you treat be normal. You know what I mean? Like, because I think there's there's since, since 2020 and the and the, um, so many things happened um, that I think a lot of us are super sensitive to certain things, and I think often it can make people try to do too much yeah and and that's and that is it's scary because like i know what you're trying to do and i understand it but then it doesn't feel good either you know so i think that we just have to be ready to be as normal and kind as possible within some realm of normalcy you know and, and i don't i don't think that's very helpful for me to say like this but it just because it, it's tough you know, and you don't want to feel like you're pandering. You don't want to feel like that, but you just have to tap in with people that you can build relationships. Um, like for me to be on that panel, it wasn't a reach. I, I've been talking to Tracksmith for a while and they were just open to the concept of like, we like what you're doing. We see you. If you need anything, let us know. And they've just done a great job at cultivating that relationship. So it's about cultivating relationships. I could have said that in the beginning. <laughs> but well, no, I'm, I'm glad you said it the way that you did, because I think that message of normalcy and just treating other people as you would treat any other runner you would come across who looks like you goes a long way. Uh, and people can tell. I mean, anyone who ever feels like they've been, you know, singled out or they're, they're treated differently. I mean, you, you can tell like when you're in that position or in that situation. And I think when, you know, you're reciprocating, when you're trying to bring people in, when you're trying to, you know, host them, when you're just trying to have a conversation with someone, talking to them like a normal person, it, it sounds so simple. I think some people make it harder than they have to, to, to mm -hmm. do, but it goes a long way toward strengthening 
bonds and making people feel like they belong there. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and I mean, at some point, I mean, there has to be, you know, there has to be some, you know, like if you're a company or a brand and you want diversity and you really believe in this thing, then yeah, you do have to reach a little farther, you know, than you normally would and change maybe some of the parameters of which like that you would, you know, go about doing business with the typical like influencer or person that you're working with. Um, yeah, you have to change a few things, but you know, it just for on a, on a, person to person level um to me and i'm somebody else may disagree and it needs to be different or whatever but to me if i walk into a store i just want to be greeted you know if i walk into a run club that i'm new to and i feel like i'm an outsider you know i just want somebody to say hey man how's it going whatever normal um and i think that that helps you know and that's all you can do you know because it's it's a yeah just be normal (laughs) try to at least we've been going for a while now. And before we wrap up, I do have a couple more things I want to touch on with you. I want to make sure we talk about Boston. So you took that first step, Detroit Free Press, you run 313. It's like, all right, 305 is within sight. I know that I'm capable of that. Pandemic happens not that long after that, but I think you qualified, correct me, if I'm wrong, before everything shut down in March of 2020. So just tell me, where did you go after Detroit Free Press and you ran that 313? Yeah, so yeah, so I know I actually ended up qualifying in 2021, so after everything opened back okay. up. Okay. So um, yeah, I was ready, did a whole training block. I ran in Atlanta um, as like a um, the half marathon there, the Publix, the day after the trials. Okay. Um, and I, 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 that was supposed to be like a... Um, um, I can't think now. Um, I was, was I was gonna run a half, like you know, some weeks out before April when I was gonna race this this full marathon. So it was like a tune up, tune up. Yeah, all of a sudden I can't think. So <laughs> I ran a so ran a tune up race, ran one twenty four oh five in hilly Atlanta. So I was like, I'm super ready for this. We're gonna do it. Everything shut down. Um, kept running just because that's just who I was and who what I was gonna be. Uh, decided to try to run a like a really small race that they were gonna put on, um, like a like a last chance like BQ thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in September of that year, ended up getting injured in July. Um, had a another stress fracture, but it was of the tibia. Um, so that took me out for four months, from July to um, I started running again like right before um, Thanksgiving of 20, 2020. and. So I'm like, okay, well, what's next? I tried. I signed up for the full marathon in Glass City, a marathon in Toledo, Ohio, for April uh, of 2021, and trained well, did my thing, got back to health, you know, um, worked through the stress fracture thing, and it, it did well, and showed up in Toledo that year and ran 248.43 to qualify for Boston. Dude, you slayed your PR. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. like. That's what twenty five minutes off of yeah. what you had run previously. Yeah, like that, yeah. Well done, man. Yeah, no, it was it was a good day for sure. What was that experience like? Did you know, like right from the get go, that you were on a good one and it was going to be a special day? No, no, actually, no. Like I was, I was shooting. I trained for two fifty. I mean, because I it I had done a couple blocks and I had kind of brought it down with my coach. So we trained for two fifty. Started off mile like two or three, 
I felt like this hamstring like tightness that I had never really felt before in a race. And I'm like, I just, I told the guy I was running with, uh, who also qualified that day. I told him like mile three or four, I'm like, yo, this probably isn't the day. Um, I'm just going to try to figure it out. And if you got to leave me, just go ahead, you know? And I just kind of like held the pace and struggled through and mile six, like I think mile, like no, at no point in this race did I feel good. Not once, you know? And I was in a real rough spot, like mile 17 through maybe 18 or 19. And I just kept going, kept making it work. Like I said, I've been in this this pain cave before. Um, I just relied on the fact that like, I just don't have a, I don't have a, a stop in me. You know, I just don't have the, the stop. I can't, you know, and mile 21, this lady, uh, was passing. She was passing the group of us. Cause it was like maybe seven of us kind of packed up. She was passing us and, um, she had kind of either been before ahead of us or behind us the whole race, but never with us. She was always kind of mm-hmm. running doing her own thing. And so once she surged at 21, and I'm like, yo, I don't feel any better than I did a while ago. So I'm just going to go with her and at least see what happens. Um, and Knox Robinson, you know Knox, right? Yeah, Knox he has was, been on the podcast a couple times. Good friend of mine. Yeah, he was actually there because he was doing a documentary on the f- a few of us from Detroit doing this thing. And so he was at like mile 21 and he was like, um, looking good, go get it, you know? And all I, hear, all I needed to hear was I looked good because I felt like I looked like crap. So I just went with her. And ran, we cut it down. I think we dropped like 10 seconds off my average pace the whole time, all the way into the to the end, and crossed the finish line feeling as bad as I did, you know, when I first thought I felt like crap. Uh, so it was not the perfect day at all. And um, I can't wait till like one day where I have a race that just felt like feels great, you know, because that one wasn't it. But you still ran a significant yeah, PR, yeah. you grinded it out got it done, hit the BQ with plenty of room to spare. Once you got over that an initial feeling that I think anyone who's ever raced a marathon is, if you did it right, I think have had to experience yeah. at one point yeah. of your life and realize, shit, I did it. I yeah. qualified for Boston. I am, what, 17 minutes under the mm-hmm. qualifier. I'm getting in when it's yeah. time to register. When that hit you, what did that feel like because this was a big goal you had set for yourself a couple years prior um if it felt it felt it felt amazing um but i I think one of my defaults like or defects still is like um i'm always like just ready for the next thing like i'm just on to the next one um and i don't i know i don't think i sat with it very long um you know, it may be just this feeling that like, I can't sit still, like I have to be doing something else. I have to keep moving. Um, so I think I just lived with it for a little bit and everybody would talk about how great it was, took some pictures or whatever, um, hung the metal up and just kept going. Um, and I wish I kind of lived in a little bit more though, to be honest, and, and really accepted that that's a big deal. Um, but I just wasn't coming. I just don't, I don't come from a place for me, um, where I can pat myself on the back for too long. So I just kept going. It felt great though, you know, but I think it's important to be honest and say like, Hey, I, I really just was like, okay, what's next? You know, how do I, how do I do this again in Boston? How do I get faster? How do I get stronger? Cause I didn't have the best race. So it was like, no, I mean, 
performance wise, I did well, but I didn't have the race that I thought mm-hmm. I wanted it to be. Um, so what's wrong there? Let's figure this out. Let's move forward. So you've qualified for Boston. You're proud of your accomplishment. You don't want to pat yourself on the back yeah. too much, but you're in. Let's fast forward to Boston itself. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about the weekend and what you felt and what you experienced when you were you know, on the panel, but you had so much going on that weekend. I remember talking to you about it briefly outside of Tracksmith. You had that event, you had an ASICS event, you had a UCAN event, probably one or two in there that I'm missing between shakeout runs and whatnot. What was just that weekend like for you to be at Boston or back in Boston as someone who qualified for the marathon. You are on these different panels. People who follow you online know who you are. I'd love to just like understand like what that was was like for you being in the city for the first time, you know, that weekend. Um, it was so uh it's so phenomenal like to to it was I would have been happy just going back to Boston um, as a qualifier and um, run the race because that's what started this whole this whole journey. Um, but to throw onto onto the front of that some uh, some really cool acknowledgement that I'm doing something that matters um, was is meant the world to me. Like, and that's why I'll always you know bring up UCAN, Tracksmith, and A64 having me be a part of that weekend in a way that um people other people won't forget let alone myself so i thought in 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 boston actually changed like kind of how i view myself in this space actually um because there so many people would i'd be walking down the street and somebody would say hey are you tommy runs or you and it was just really strange to kind of have that happen um but i thought that people i thought it was all about running you know i thought it was about that, it, that I ran 248.43. I thought it was that I ran all these miles, you know, a week and stuff. And that's all great, you know? And I thought it was that I had the cool shoes. But it turned out, you know, that people, it seemed like people resonated with my sto- my story and who I'm trying to be and who I am. So that's why that weekend, you know, meant means and meant so much is because it showed me that people care about my my greatest achievements you know and my greatest achievement isn't qualifying for boston you know my greatest achievement is sobriety you know for five years leading into living a healthy life that you know that my kids and other people can see and maybe model after in a way and representing black running or black folks in general in a space that doesn't have a bunch of us to represent at the moment you know um and that is what people connected to and that's what i hope to lean into and yeah i'm gonna keep running for sure you know and i want to go back to boston for sure but i do know now that you know my calling in life isn't to (laughs) to run 240 something in boston you know the calling in life is to is to represent you know what i am in in its totality you know I love hearing that because I can only speak for myself, but as someone who was in Boston and excited to meet you for the first time and have you on my panel, I had no idea what your marathon time was. I knew you'd qualified for Boston. It was going to be your first. That's about the extent I knew of your running accomplishments, but 
I knew a bit about your story and the panel we were on wasn't the place to really dig deeper into it like we're doing now, but it was just the example that you set. Someone who hadn't been running for a long time, but now it's a part of your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Someone who has achieved sobriety. Someone who, as you just mentioned, is representing the black running community and Mm -hmm. showing people within it, hey, you can do this too. You can Mm -hmm. be a part of this. And I just really admire that. And I admire you for that. And I love that that was the biggest surprise that you experienced all weekend. And, you know, aside from experiencing the 26.2 miles from Hopkinton to Boston itself was the biggest thing that you took away from it. Yeah. I mean, besides the fact that (laughs) the race didn't go as I planned or whatever, um, it was just, it was still like one of the best experiences that I've, that I've ever had. You know, because even when I was struggling through the race, you know, people that I had no idea who they were were saying, you know, were saying words of support and knew and knew who I was. And that's not I mean, that's not to say like, oh, look, guys, you know, people know me or whatever. But it just showed me more of like that normalcy that I was talking about. Like people weren't saying like, hey, you know, I'm super glad to see, you know, more black people out here. You know, it wasn't that it was Mm -hmm. weird. I, I, you inspire me for these reasons outside of that, you know, outside of like running and I follow you for all these, all this time, really happy to meet you. Thank you. Keep doing what you're doing for the community or your community, whatever it was. Um, and that just meant to me, just keep going just like that crossing that finish line, um, in Chicago meant like you're on the right path. Keep going. Um, so yeah, that's what that weekend meant to me, for sure. Let's dig into that. Where do you go from here? You said, yeah, you'd love to qualify for Boston again. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've got some other race goals, but paint that picture for me. What does it look like for you? What excites you? What do you want to devote your time, energy, and attention toward in the coming years as it relates to this pursuit of running? Um. I I want to. Uh, I, that's a that's a good question. Too. I mean, because I I want to um, obviously keep running for I me mean, because that's that's who I am at this point, and I want to get faster and train and keep showing myself different sides of who I am and dig deeper in that you know mental and physical battle of running you know and spiritual sometimes when it gets real crazy, um, but I want to. I want to lean into that the the space of the 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 running industry space that you know since we talked about it and you know we've all we all saw that how many running companies responded to 2020 and you know Maude Arbery, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all these injustices that were just have been happening forever um and I a lot of companies said a lot of things you know and some companies stepped up, some companies haven't or whatever, but I want to continue to lean into the space to represent, you know, not all of black people, but just to say, this is who we are and this is who, this is what we're we're here to stay, you know? And there's other folks like that Knox has, Knox has been paving the way to this for so long. It just seems Mm -hmm. like he's, he's a staple in running, you know, then you have like, like Hakim Safari, who's out in California, that's doing his thing in a different way. 
Um, and I just feel like my goal now is to work with brands to to show and tell my story as much as possible. Because the sad thing about like the my community is that, and and I'll even go further to any community, everyone knows somebody within reach almost that has had an addiction of some sort that was either debilitating, ended them, um, you know, died or just you know down and out. And everybody knows someone that had struggles with mental health in some way, shape, or form, um, or it had a bad relationship with food or whatever the the case may be. I want to share my story because I'm black, because I'm vegan, because I run, because I'm trying to set an example for myself, set an example for my kids, and set an example for anybody else that looks like me. Last question, because we've been going for almost two hours here, and I want to be respectful of your time. Building off of that and to wrap this one up, what's exciting you most in running right now, whether it's your own pursuit of it, which you've already talked a bit about, Mm -hmm. the sport itself, which I know you've become a fan of, or the industry as a whole? I mean, I think, I mean, I'd have to say, you know, I'm I'm most excited about the opportunities that present themselves to people like me, um, because you have to, you know, we want, if you want people to run, or if you want people to, to, to see a future in something, you have to show them that there's a future in something, you know, like to get younger black kids to like decide, like to just run for habit and run out of health. Um, I just don't, I think it's just harder to, that, that sales pitch is a little easier if there's more people like me doing things the more on the front line and being seen and being successful in that. Um, so I'm really just really excited at the opportunities that seem like they're presenting themselves to, you know, minorities or people that weren't really always accepted or represented in this space. Um, and like, it seems selfish to say that I'm excited about my stuff, but I feel like the more that I'm able to do and be on shows like this and have opportunities to work with brands, um, the more we'll start seeing other people decide to take those leaps too and start YouTube channels and start podcasts and reach out to brands and um, make a future for themselves and their communities. So that's what I'm excited about is what running can be for so many people um, that it just hasn't been quite yet. I think that's the perfect place to put a pin in this one. I appreciate the opportunity to get to dig into your story with you, get to know you a little bit better. I really loved this conversation. I look forward to subsequent ones, whether we do it again for the podcast or it happens offline. But Tommy Runs, thank you so much for joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. I super appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to Tracksmith and Open for making this episode possible. Tracksmith is an independent running brand inspired by a deep love of the sport. Their spring-summer collection is now available and features staples thoughtfully designed for training and racing hard in warm weather. My personal favorites are the Session T and the Alston Half Tights. 
If you buy anything on Tracksmith.com in the month of June, you can get free shipping on your next order and support the Tracksmith Foundation, which helps give more people the opportunity to participate in track and field by using the code MARIO22 at checkout. That's MARIO22 when you check out at Tracksmith.com. Open is a digital mindfulness platform combining breathwork, meditation, and movement. I do a 5-10 to minute breathwork class most days to get away from my desk and clear my head. Let's take a class together. Open is giving Morning Shakeout listeners 30 days free when you visit withopen.com slash Mario. Again, you can join me on Open by going to withopen.com slash Mario. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He's produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to my right-hand man, Chris Douglas, for handling sponsorship sales and various other duties, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys help keep things running smoothly. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.